Welcome to Core of the Matter, the weekly public affairs show of 90.3, The Core. I'm your host, Yashwant Manjanath, and today we're going to be talking about public sector unions. Seems like an appropriate topic given the Wisconsin protests, and especially so here in New Jersey with Republican Governor Chris Christie and his ever-continuing war against the public sector unions. So today we have conservative political scientist Daniel DeSalvo on for a pre-recorded interview that we did with him earlier today. We were talking about public sector unions and collective bargaining in the public sector and how that differs from the private sector. And for the last segment of the show, we have on the Rutgers Student Union. We've got two representatives here. They're formerly known as 10 State. Should be interesting. Presenting both sides here on this issue at the core, as we always try to do. So hope you guys enjoy it. Without further ado, I'm going to show you guys part one of the interview. You're listening to Core of the Matter here on 90.3 The Core. Professor of Political Science at City College of New York, and he recently wrote an article titled The Trouble with Public Sector Unions for National Affairs. So, Daniel, why don't you introduce yourself to the audience and tell us a little bit about yourself and the National Affairs Journal? Well, I'm a political science professor at the City College of New York, as you mentioned. I study campaigns, elections, public policy, and I wrote an article that uh, for a journal called National Affairs, which is uh, kind of the continu- con- continuation of a journal called uh, The Public Interest, which for a long time was seen as a, uh, a journal concerned with domestic policy and public policy in the United States, and has a, mainly an audience of intellectuals and policymakers in New York and Washington. Um, but they're trying to extend their reach beyond that, that slice. Okay. Does National Affairs have any ideological or partisan leanings? It's probably seen, or the public and the public interest before it, as probably seen as partly on the the center right of the political spectrum. Although certainly, National Affairs and the public interest before it had many authors that wrote for it that were from the center left as well. I mean, famous con- contributors to the public interest uh, they had people like Daniel Patrick Moynihan, longtime uh, Democratic senator from from New York. And yeah, I'm, I'm familiar with him. <laughs> sure. Okay, so you spend a lot of your article describing how public sector and private sector unions are very different. Can you explain some of those differences to our audience? Uh, sure. The biggest difference at the first way into the subject is the impact of market forces. And market forces are constantly uh, present for private sector unions, but not so much, if at all, for those in the public sector. So here's what I have in mind is if you're a union in the private sector, uh, say, auto workers, uh, you want to negotiate with the business managers of, say, GM. So you're the United Auto Workers negotiating with GM. The issue here is that one has to be continually mindful of the issue that the private sector managers are going to be much tougher in negotiations because they have a temptation to squeeze labor and keep as much of the profits either for themselves in their own salary or 
to invest in other things like research and development to keep the company profitable over the long term. On the other side, the union has to be conscious that if it goes too far in its wage and benefit demands or in the work rules that it tries to negotiate, it can, over the long term, make the company uncompetitive vis-a-vis its rivals and therefore put its own jobs on the line because if the company loses market share, ultimately it will have to lay off workers. In the public sector, these kinds of market forces are not at all present insofar as government managers have no possibility of keeping any leftover profits for themselves, nor, in many cases, is the government ever likely to go out of business, such that the demands can continually be ratcheted up without any real concern um, that the government is somehow going to become uncompetitive vis-a-vis its rivals because it's a monopoly provider of a large number of services, most obviously police. Uh, corrections officers. I, I understand your your point here, and you know, sorry to cut you off, but at the same time, how is that significantly different from, say, what's going on in Wisconsin right now, where the unions already agreed to salary and benefit cuts because the state has to, of course, have a balanced budget, and the states are required by law to have balanced budgets. Uh, public sector unions have to bear in mind that you know, their contracts sometimes can be renegotiated and their benefits can be renegotiated based on the government being able to meet its debts. It's a it, well, I think on, on that score, it's a it's a much different mechanism, um, especially in terms of efficiency when it comes to work rules and so on. There's just many, even without public sector unions, there's much fewer go- market incentives for government to be and to act efficiently just because it's not in a competitive relationship, for the most part, with other service providers. Now, the other big difference between public and private sector unions is the difference of the way that public sector unions are much more political organization and can in some ways put themselves on both sides of the bargaining table insofar as they can try to elect their bosses, as AFSCME's website puts it, by contributing to politicians' campaigns and then lobbying them once they're in office, the public sector union can put themselves in some ways on both sides of the bargaining table in a way in which private sector unions could never hope to do. The UAW never thinks that it is intimately involved in the selection of the CEO of GM. Yeah, that's that's a very fair point. And you know, that's something that we have here in the United States, but you know, in other countries, private sector unions do have have that power to help elect the board and and help decide who the CEO is. Uh, it seems to work just fine in countries like Germany and Japan. But that's not the arrangement here in the United States. Um, so, if we're talking about differences between public sector and private sector unions in the United States, yeah, I, I agree with you. Absolutely central difference. Um, yeah, and I think also in that instance. Even when union members are members of a board in Germany, they're not directly picking all of the government, uh, all of the uh, company's management. So I think that's a quite strained analogy. Well, no, they aren't involved in picking everyone. But at the same time, public sector unions don't have dictatorial power and influence over our elections with their political influence. I mean, there are other special interests that also have a hold over our political process and, and actually spend more money than the unions do, like 
corporations, for example. And I mean, do you feel the same way about how corporate power over the political process allows corporations to decide who's regulating them and to what extent the public is protected from negative externalities that result from corporate abuse? Well, let's take the issue of comparing uh, public sector unions in their capacity as interest groups to other interest groups in the political process. And we can distinguish out a couple of advantages that they have over over other groups. Right. The first is that they have immediate access to politicians through the collective bargaining process. Other interest groups, whether you're the Sierra Club or you're the National Association of Manufacturers or the NRA, you have to fight to get entree, to get into politicians' offices, to get them to answer your phones. You have to, whereas public sector unions have immediate access uh, through the collective bargaining process to politicians. The second big advantage that they have is over other interest groups is that they have a very constant and stable stream of revenue that comes through their the union dues checkoff. That is, in most states like New York, where I am, or in Wisconsin, until this law passed, the union dues are paid out in salary, but then they're immediately collected by the state and sent to the unions. The unions have to de- designate very little administrative overhead to the collection of the revenue that keeps them going, unlike, say, the Sierra Club or the NRA, which would obviously have to dedicate significant administrative tasks to fundraising. So those are two significant advantages that they have over other interest groups. And the sums of money can be huge. In the 2010 election for Congress at the federal level, the AFSCME, which is the largest public employee union in the country, was the largest campaign spender and outspent the National Association of Manufacturers. Well, so that's, uh, I, I guess the, the sums of money can be large and, and highly influential, and they go in one direction, which is almost exclusively to the Democratic Party in a way that business contributions are distributed more or less evenly, depending on the election year, between the parties. Well, okay, I have a, I have a couple issues with, with what you just said. I mean, I understand your point about how public sector unions do have, have access directly through the collective bargaining process. Now, as far as the AFSCME being the largest contributor in the 2010 elections, I'm sure you're aware that after the Citizens United decision, independent expenditures actually dwarfed just regular campaign contributions. And if you look at independent expenditures, they went from being the top contributor in the 08 election to being further down that list. I think I think they were actually sixth on the list. And the Chamber of Commerce and, and the two crossroads groups actually outspent them in terms of independent expenditures as far as outside ads and, and things like that. The money difference there, I mean, if you're only going to focus on a very specific part of campaign finance, that's a little deceptive. But look, I don't want to get bogged down on on this topic. I was just curious as if you were worried about special interests in general influencing our political process in an anti-democratic way or or just about public sector unions. Well, that's a much larger question that has been a long-time concern of political scientists of whether there's a, say, a pro-business bias to interest group lobbying in Washington or in state capitals and elsewhere. That's a, a much larger subject on which I don't specialize. I probably don't have anything especially original to say. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but there's a, a, been a long-standing debate between those who think that there is a 
business has a privileged position in American politics, and those who dissent from that position even going so far as to saying there's no such thing as business in America because businesses often have such conflicting and conflicting interests that they in some ways cancel each other out. You, you can only imagine the different lobbying positions of importers versus exporters. Yeah, and, and as, but, far as, as far as your point about how businesses, when they spend money, or business groups when they spend money, they try to split things up between Republicans and Democrats. That's true, but at the same time, the policies that they advocate don't really change, and often those policies go against the public interest. It's just they have influence over both political parties as opposed to the public sector unions who only really have influence over the Democratic Party. So that that I, I think that's a... Uh, that's only a concern for partisan political operatives, more so than than uh, voters trying to see a government that's actually responsive to their needs. Mm-hmm. Now, one interesting example you brought up in your article about public sector unions uh, using their political power to serve their own interests is the corrections union in California. Can you tell our audience a little bit about that, particularly their role in the passage of the 1994 three strikes laws? Well, this was a situation where it's often the case that public employees unions lobby for more government work because more government work leads to more members for them, which leads to more union dues. So it continues a a cyclical process, and that partly advances the interests of their members. And the whole point, it's fair to remember, there's nothing negative about this in the sense that what public sector unions and unions in general are designed to do is advance the interests of their members. That's what they're, that's their whole purpose. So there's nothing cynical or uh, about that. Now, in the case of the California Corrections Officers Union, they lobbied for the passage by the legislature of a three strikes mandatory sentencing law, which had the effect of dramatically reducing the discretion that uh, judges in California could use in sentencing and has had the effect of dramatically increasing the size of the prison population, such that the state of California has built a large number of new prisons over the last two decades. And, of course, the number of corrections officers and their levels of compensation have proceeded apace. Yeah, I actually read about what the CCPOA tried to do in Michael Jacobson's book, Downsizing Prisons. Are you familiar with it? I have not read this book, but... Yeah, I mean, it it talks about how interest groups and uh, political uh, organizations on both sides have really fought to in, lead to the mass incarceration problem we have in this country today. But now mentioned in your article was that Schwarzenegger was trying to privatize prison services in California to reduce the influence of corrections unions. Well, that was a position he adopted, actually, second. His first position was w- what he... Because of the influence of the Corrections Officers Union in the state legislature, Schwarzenegger proposed a referendum process to go around the legislature that would, and proposed a referendum that would have, in some ways, weakened the political power of the Corrections Union. That referendum was then defeated by, in part because it was linked up to a series of other referendums, all of which were opposed by the state public sector unions in the state, including the California Teachers Association. That referendum went down to defeat, and in light of that defeat, Governor Schwarzenegger at the time proposed, well, we should privatize the prisons um, so that they won't have this 
union. That was his position. It, 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 that was a pros, proposal that went nowhere under Mr. Schwarzenegger under the rest of his term. Right. Well, the way you presented in the article, it, it seemed like you felt like that was actually an answer to the problem. I mean, do you do you think privatizing prison services is a good idea? Well, um, I slightly dissent from your characterization of what I said. Okay, uh, that's fine. I, I think I was more trying to just accurately describe what Schwarzenegger did in light of his evisceration at the polls by the by the public employees right, that's, union. That's totally fine. That's switch positions. I I didn't I don't think I took a stand on whether that was a a wise privatizing prisons was a uh wise or unwise idea. I think that will depend very much on particular circumstances and I'm often skeptical um personally of issues where the use of force is required. It, that seems to be a, a, a specifically state function. And there are some very good arguments for why corrections and police and so on should remain government functions. <laughs> okay, I was just making sure. Uh, and obviously, you know, that's why we like to have people like you on, so we can work out any misunderstandings that sure. I guess we could have based on how I, I read your article. But okay, I was just trying to make sure there. Sure. So, so you spent time in your article discussing the generous pension benefits that exist in the public sector, yet... Pension benefits are, of course, partially funded by deferred wages paid into the system by public employees. And you also acknowledge that part of the reason pensions have become such huge fiscal liabilities is that state governments haven't been paying into them properly. So how should the situations with public pensions be resolved? Well, it's a complicated situation. Um, Without going too much into the details of how defined benefit pensions and so on work is the problem here in part is that you start off with a situation where as you rightly put it public employees probably receive too much compensation that's deferred that is in fact after they stop working now politicians of course found that this could be a very good way to placate uh, unions but then turn around and uh, manipulate the pension schemes in ways that, in a sense, mortgage the future. So what would often happen is politicians discovered, well, we can't raise wages much higher for public employees, but we'll offer a a pension sweetener, which is something like reducing the year that one can retire or changing the benefit formula in such a way. But then that's committing the state to a larger outlay of revenue in the future, But politicians say, well, that's in the future, and then we'll borrow against this So to pay for current operating costs. The result is that the public is getting more in public services than it's actually paying for in real time. But because these are complex actuarial decisions, it's very hard for average voters to see what's happening or to understand what's happening. So the issue here with the way defined benefit pension schemes work is partly that they open up to too much manipulation that is in a way very hard for the public to understand but it's in fact committing the public to huge commitments down the line yeah and of course the politicians who are spending the money now are worried about their immediate short-term re-election prospects and not really worried about what happens to the long-term fiscal situation of whatever out of office yeah exactly but again so how should these situations be resolved what should happen well 
again, I think prescribing is, is always harder than taking apart uh, a problem. There's a lot of options for, for what can be done. Right. Um, at least a couple of the things is uh, the biggest probably most widespread discussed proposal is to switch from what's what is the current norm in the public sector which is a defined benefit pension um to what's called a defined contribution pension and defined contribution plans are more like a 401k the basic difference is it puts more of the onus of con- contributing to the fund on the worker and ultimately puts more of the risk for how the fund performs on the worker themselves than on the defined benefit plan, which in many cases workers paid very little or nothing toward the plan and most all of the risk was held by the government or by the taxpayer if the fund didn't perform to a certain standard. All right, so you're in favor of basically public sector pensions and benefits operating more like how they do in the private sector. Well, that could be one solution. I think that there are, there are other solutions. I would I would recommend a, a very nice article in, that's coming out on this subject in in National Affairs by a guy named Josh Barrow. I think he's shown the range of possibilities for reform and the the difficulties with the current arrangements if one wants to get down into the fine print of these actuarial issues related to the two types of pension schemes. Some states have gone in the direction of offering workers, rather than moving from one type to the other, they've often workers a choice. So different workers in different situations can uh, move in a different way. And just offering the choice can, insofar as some adopt the 401k style plan, that can, in a sense, free up lots of fiscal commitments down the line for the state. And in fact, where I work, I'm a unionized employee. We have that option for city college professors. You can choose a defined benefit plan or you can choose a defined contribution plan. Right. But what should happen to people who have benefits promised to them right now that are part of a pension system that is fiscally unsustainable? Well, very little in most cases will uh, is likely, I guess. I mean, Predicting the future is always hard, but very little is likely to happen to people with the current promises that have been made. In many cases, those are constitutionally guaranteed, and tampering with the amount of money and the retirement checks that current retirees or people already in the system are going to receive. That's been tried in a couple places like Colorado. It's immediately led to court challenges, and in most cases, the courts have come down on the side of the retirees because these pension benefits are guaranteed. So when we're talking about pension reform, mostly this is going to be a reform that would impact new workers coming into the system. Because, again, these are long-term commitments, and so what the states and cities are trying to do is by changing the benefit schemes for new retirees is, in a sense, to shore up their long-term structural budget future. Okay. So your article at the end recommends that collective bargaining in the public sector should be eliminated. What do you think of the recent Wisconsin legislation that does exactly that? Well, actually, contrary to your reading, uh, I I didn't argue that at all at the end. In fact, I put that out as a possibility that only if things became so bad (laughs) that some politicians might take that up. But I actually turned around and said I thought that that was probably unlikely and unwise, which shows how poor I was at predicting the future 
just six months ago. So I actually did not make a case at all in the article for or or against collective bargaining. In, in well, I mean, come on. You, you At the end, you say the only arguments you see in favor of collective bargaining, you brought up the three arguments that liberals always make, that public sector unions preserve some standard of benefits and uh, wages for all workers, including those in the private sector. That I, I don't mean to cut you off, but right. these are arguments about – those were arguments about public sector unions generally, which aren't specifically on whether or not uh, on collective bargaining. Okay, all right. If you were thinking about the, the case for and against collective bargaining in specific, one has to say that this is part of a larger set of arrangements. Now, one can imagine reform proposals going forward to recalibrate the relationship between public sector unions and politicians and the governments for which they work, which clearly from my article, and I generally think that in many states these have gotten out of whack and some right. reform needs to be made. I think that's the broader point that I tried to make at the end of, end of the piece. Now, one could do this in a number of different ways, some of which might mean changes to collective bargaining laws. Some of it might mean changes to the way dues are collected and the way people, the default options of whether people opt into becoming a union member or whether they have to opt out. So one could see ways to recalibrate this that go down the road of changing collective bargaining rules. One could see a way that goes down the rules that reduce the amount of money unions have in for political activity. Or one could try, as Wisconsin has done quite boldly, is to go down both at the same time. And that's partly why what they've done is so controversial. Whether that's necessary or not is, of course, a political judgment. All right. Now, the sense I get from you from reading your article, that public sector unions make government services more inefficient. But do you also feel that government workers are overpaid or overcompensated in some way? Or? Generally, I mean, I'm not an economist. Uh, I haven't done individual studies on this, but I've read the literature. I think the general consensus is that when it comes to wages and salaries, government workers are not overpaid. To the extent that there's a debate about overcompensation, it entirely hinges on the, the way people, the actuarial forecast of the future value of benefits of right. health and, and pensions. Now, you can change these technical assumptions about the, what those long-term values will be, and those will show that government workers are slightly make more than the private sector for comparable jobs, or you can change them and it'll show that they make slightly less. Now, I think the bigger issue here is really so really it really hinges on the value of long-term benefits rather than on wages right. and the overall reasons but i think the other thing to keep in mind is that any comparable worth study that studies both public and private sector workers the one of their difficulties is they exclude many categories of workers that have no private sector counterparts so you're factored into those calculations are not going to be teachers police officers and corrections officers the obvious reason that it's impossible to compare a New York City police officer, what they do on a day-to-day basis, and the dangers that they face with a mall security guard. Well, with corrections officers, you can compare them to what people make in private prisons, can't you? You can. Again, the difficulties here, without getting too technical, is that, and you could also make comparisons between teachers in public and private schools, but the difficulty with those comparisons is that the sample sizes of the number of employees that work in the private sector in those positions is so small comparison to the public sector that it complicates the comparison greatly. Right. Now, you make a lot of 
arguments about issues with public sector unions and and I would agree with a lot of them and and I actually was very split on on the issue of uh, collective bargaining in the public sector and, and public sector unionization in general before the Wisconsin situation. But I guess what I can't get past is uh, a recent paper that, that I looked at from the Economic Policy Institute. It was published by Rutgers University professor Jeffrey Keefe. I don't know if you're familiar with this. I am. Oh, okay. Well, he looked into public employee compensation in the state of New Jersey, which is one of the states that, that you mentioned in your article. And of course, New Jersey has one of the highest rates of union membership in the country. Now, in his paper, Are New Jersey Public Employees Overpaid? He found that full-time state and local employees are actually undercompensated, including wages and benefits, by 5.9% in comparison to private sector workers when you adjust for level of education and hours worked. So whenever you know you bring up comparisons between public and private sector workers, when you're talking about college-educated public sector workers, they make significantly less than than workers in the private sector, even with unionization. That's correct. Part of the effect of unionization is the compression of the salary scale. So one of the reasons that's often noted by analysts is that if you, at the top end of the labor market, say for jobs like accountants, economists, engineers that work in government, it's much more likely that you'll receive substantially less than you could make in the private sector. 25% less, actually, yeah. Now, again, the Keefe study is, is a perfect example of what I discussed about the different kind of actuarial assumptions. And he, he's one of the people that finds consistently that, they, that if you factor in wages and benefits, you make less. Of course, one could find other studies that suggest the opposite, based, again, usually on the way that the calculations of what the benefits will be worth in the future. Now, I, the other side to this is that in addition to a compression at the top end of the scale is a slight premium at the low end of the scale. So you can see that someone in a secretarial or janitorial position it will make slightly more in the public sector than in the private sector. Yeah, you, you mentioned how janitors, for example, in the public sector make on average 22000 versus janitors in the private sector making 18000 or 19000 And I can definitely understand how, okay, well, yes, that's true at the low end. Public sector uh, union workers are getting compensated a little more, but at the same time, these people are still—I'm sure you would agree—in the bottom fifty percent of. No one's making a king's ransom here. Yeah, exactly. I'm completely in agreement on that yeah. point, and, and and certainly, and um, yeah. you know, the bottom bottom fifty percent uh, of workers in this country actually control less than three percent of the total wealth. So even though you have these public sector union workers in the low end making a little more they still have a very tiny share of of the wealth in this country and i mean i just don't see how this issue with public sector unions why this is such a huge fiscal issue when we already talking about how depending on actuarial assumptions compensation between the private and public sector it, it varies but it's still very you know similar i mean it's not like th- these public sector workers are this huge drain on a macro level well, the big issue for states is really where their budgets are and what states and cities, where they can, when you're looking at states and cities' budgets, what they're, what, when they're saying, what can we cut or what do we have flexibility over? And often it turns on worker compensation. So that's why so many of the battles, whether it's Wisconsin or whether it's Connecticut or whether it's New Jersey or New York or California, why so much of this is turning on compensation is because if, if one looks at the way that 
what what constitutes a state or a city's budget, so much of that budget is off limits in a sense to state and local or to state lawmakers because mandated spending by the federal government. Right. So if you look at the discretionary portion of state and local budgets, this is where they're going to look to find places to cut going forward and this is why they're running in headlong into the representatives of public employee unions. Right. But when you look at what uh, what these states now with these budget problems are trying to cut, right? They're still going after wages and benefits for workers in the public sector. And in fact, not just Wisconsin, but uh, Michigan as well, passing tax cuts for corporations and businesses while at the same time cutting benefits and wages for workers in the public sector under the guise of needing to fix a budget problem when it just seems like a change in priority of spending more than anything. Well, that's partly, it is a partly a change in priority of spending. But I mean, if that's the case, then what's going on with these public unions? You really think that the people who are going after public sector unions are doing it for budgetary reasons or are they doing it for political reasons? Because as we saw in Wisconsin, it ultimately passed uh, not as a budget bill, but as just a a regular piece of legislation because they didn't have quorum for a budget bill. I'd say it's it's probably like most things in politics, (laughs) a little bit of both. (laughs) It's a little bit of principle and it's a little bit of politics. So I think that's probably a fair statement in Wisconsin. I mean, there's no doubt that for Republicans, uh, taking on public sector unions is a great wedge issue. They get at the same time to attack three things that they're never very keen on, unions, government, and Democrats all at the same time. Where else can you get an issue like that? Yeah, exactly. Well, it's really all I had to talk to you about today, but thank you for joining us, and it was great having you on. My pleasure. Okay, so you just listened to my interview with conservative political scientist Daniel DeSalvo, who presented that side of the argument on public sector unions and collective bargaining in the public sector. Now I have on two representatives from the Rutgers Student Union who will probably have a a slightly different take than Mr. DeSalvo did. So why don't you guys introduce yourselves for the audience? I'm Joel Salvino. I'm part of the Rutgers Student Union. And my name is Donggu, or Jack, from Rutgers Student Union. Right. And I guess what the Rutgers Student Union is, we're a collective of students, we're on student government, and we just pretty much try to organize the students at Rutgers to stand up and do something um, defensively, really, now, to keep our school public and stop tuition hikes. Yeah, I mean, the yeah, so our, our goals for Rutgers Union is also to introduce, like, one way to put it is radical democracy, which means to put democracy at all levels of society, including Rutgers. As many of you might not know, the people who control our very own tuition as students are Board of Governors, and they're not elected, nor is President McCormick, and nor is a host of other uh, important positions that factor in our very lives as Rutgers students. So, Wow, that's really ironic. I didn't know that McCormick was not elected, and the fact that his title is President really is a little deceptive. Yeah, it's more like... Um, I, I don't know. I guess like right. a CEO or <laughs> well, well, we do have a CEO of Rutgers. We have a chairman of Rutgers, the head of the board of governors, who really has all the power more than anyone else. I like to see McCormick as almost a uh, a figurehead because he doesn't get the final say. The board of governors gets the final say in everything. And we have Ralph Izzo, former CEO of PSE and G. 
He's in charge of raising our tuition, and he's on the Forbes 500 list. He's somewhere around number 300. So we have a multimillionaire deciding that Rutgers tuition isn't high enough, so they raise it every single year. By the way, the uh, Board of Governors is an 11-person board um, where six of them are appointed by the governor of New Jersey and five of them are appointed by the Board of Trustees. Which is also an unelected board. Yep. Before we get into the specific Rutgers issues, which I definitely want to get to after the break, I just wanted to get your thoughts on the interview with Daniel about uh, the issue of public sector unionization and collective bargaining in the public sector and uh, the Wisconsin situation. So I want to hit on the, the last point of the interview, which was that from his point of view, correct me if I'm wrong, is that he thinks the public unions have some sort of a, an advantage over the private sector unions or for any other worker. But this is where I get confused. And I think you pointed this out in the interview is that they're not making that much money overall. They're still in the bottom 50% or 90% or whatever you want to call it. Yeah, and the the people who are being slightly overcompensated versus their private sector counterparts are, in fact, still in the bottom 50% of earners in this country and still control less than 3% of the wealth overall. Exactly. And at the time of severe, um, I suppose, austerity measures and... Uh, and depression. And... <laughs> And uh, and terrible financial situations. Um, you have to wonder why are we scapegoating these groups of people? I'm sure some some of the unions um, are ineffective or maybe corrupt, and history shows that. But absolutely, uh, yeah. blaming them for the problems of you know financial reasons, especially you know caused by the millionaires themselves. Yeah, um, well, caused by the Wall Street bankers. Yeah, 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 yeah. The upper one percent. And then you look at the the situation in Wisconsin, it's a clear case of, of scapegoating. And that's what I have a problem with in, in his viewpoint. Yeah, I mean, he didn't get into specifics about what his own political views were on the Wisconsin situation. He, he tried to avoid that, and, and that's fine. But, yeah, I, I definitely agree with you that to a certain extent there was scapegoating that went on in Wisconsin, especially since the governor had approved tax cuts for businesses right before trying to pursue eliminating collective bargaining rights in Wisconsin. And and it, at the end, he didn't even try to pretend it was a budget matter anymore. So that's definitely, uh, I definitely agree with you there. But before we continue with our discussion, got to take a quick break. So we'll be right back, everybody. You're listening to Core of the Matter here on 90.3 The Core. And we're talking about public sector unions with two representatives from the Rutgers Student Union. Welcome back to Core of the Matter here on 90.3 The Core. I'm your host, Yashwant Manjanath, and this is our weekly public affairs show. The topic today is public sector unionization. Those of you who've been listening to the show know that we just aired a pre-recorded interview with conservative political scientist Daniel DeSalvo, and now we're talking to two representatives from the Rutgers Student Union. So we were just talking about Wisconsin, just started to get into that situation before we had to take a quick break. Either of you guys have anything else to say about Wisconsin? I just want to say I have some family members out there, and they, they have actually bought into Walker's idea that public sectors are bankrupting the state. They, they seem to believe that their state is bankrupt. They have no more money, and the money has to come from someone. And what they fail to realize when I present them with facts about how the governor gave over $130 million in corporate tax breaks, they simply deny them. Like, I am literally presenting facts in front of people's faces, but for some reason they can't read them 
And I, personally, I would want to blame the news that they watch. They plug Fox News in their house daily for over 24 hours a day, it seems. So I really would like to blame these, uh, this right-winged, almost fascist news source for a lot of the mindset that um, oh, people boy. do have about public unions. Oh man! Um, that's, that, <laughs> so try, try, yeah. <laughs> the thing that I I have to say about you, Wisconsin, is oh, that. But by, by the way, right now we have on Jack Yoon and, and Joel Salvino from the Rutgers Student Union, just trying to let people know who they're listening to. <laughs> yeah, and Joel's the, hate uh, mail can come to me, please. Yeah, yeah. Joel's the, the hate mail direction. So with, with Wisconsin, the one thing that people should keep in mind is that students are actively partaking in the protests and the the movement that's going on there. It's not just union folks. It's it's the students because they know that they're the future laborers. They know that they're going into the real world. They're they're training for life. And so they have an active interest in what the outcome is going to be. And they know that. Even high school kids. Right. And, um, the, and the governor is also cutting higher education. Yeah, so. that too. And so students are fed up and they're going out in droves supporting the, uh, the unions because collective bargaining to them is uh, a right. Which is federally recognized for private sectors, but not for for public sector. So, do you think that unionization should be recognized as a right in the public sector? Yes, I do. Yeah, I do too. Yeah. I think I think any time there are workers, um, especially when they're just as important as like firemen or teachers. I mean, these people. Well, they are firemen and teachers. Exactly. Yeah. yeah exactly. They're they're yeah. they're one of the most important parts of the public sector, and. To not treat them like we would any other human being at a place of work is it's, it's disgusting. It's, it's almost like treating them less than any other worker. Right? And going back to a second about the uh, whole scapegoating issue, um, when we demonize unions and talk about unions in a negative aspect, um, and especially comparing their salaries and benefits to the private sectors, it makes you wonder uh, if what would happen if more of the public sector employees were unionized and their benefits and compensation were e- either evenly matched or even exceeded. More of the private sector. Yeah, I'm, I'm right. sorry. More of the yeah, private sector. Um, or even Evenly matched or even exceeded the public sector union workers. Then you would imagine um, that the American mentality or the scapegoating effect might have a little bit, might be a little bit different. Yeah, I think that really has to do with the fact that a vast majority of workers are in the private sector and not the public sector. So, I guess you're having that majority feel resentful for uh, benefits packages that the public sector receives that they don't enjoy in the private sector, that that job security that they themselves willingly traded away when they voluntarily went to work in the the private sector. Yeah, but I mean, I don't particularly blame uh, the individuals in the private sector. I'm just saying that it's it seems like it's a mentality of envying my neighbor while ignoring the real... um, the problem, which is the the very very top right. percent that have all the wealth, uh, or not all the wealth, but a huge portion of the wealth in this country, I mean, you can no, might they as have, well they say have all of it. Yeah. you can might as well. <laughs> we know. we have just but, enough wealth to be able to afford food, so we can go back to work and make them more money. That's the amount of wealth we have <laughs> in this country. All right, well, right. I'm not saying that we should go well, in pitchforks and and hang their heads on pikes, but I'm saying well, that there's there's economic time, reform is a, difficult there's Jackie. a time for a reason um and logic and the reason and logic is that you know um if someone has over 10 billion dollars and let's say somebody has 10.4 billion dollars that they have a total investments and, and capital and everything and and the state of new jersey is in that we have 10 billion dollars of a budget crisis their 10 billion dollars could fix 
all of New Jersey's budget problems, and they would still have four hundred million dollars left over. That's unbelievable. Is and it, by the way, that person is real, and and she does live in New Jersey, so right. And, and she's a heiress. Uh, she didn't really work for any of her money. Just throwing that out there. All right. Well, that's that's good to know. And you guys are trying to get me in trouble with your violent imagery here, but <laughs> taxes aren't that violent. Okay. All right. Well. You guys before seemed really interested, totally unprompted by me, to talk about Rutgers issues and, and your work here at Rutgers as the Rutgers Student Union and how that might relate to this discussion. So have at it. What were you guys trying to talk about before? Well, uh, we were talking earlier about the Board of Governors, which is this uh, this body, unelected, who gets to control everything that happens at this public university. And we just also touched upon the fact that every single one of them, or not every single one, most of them are CEOs or, or ex-CEOs of corporations. And I know Ralph Izzo, who actually runs the board, he's the chairman, is on the Forbes uh, 500 list. So uh, all decisions made for a public university that affects your life, affects your tuition, are made by one of these people who control 99 or 90% of the wealth. They're in the top 1%, really. So here's the uh, big thing about Rutgers, too. And it's, this isn't completely Rutgers' fault, because this is the national as well as state trend, is that all of these public colleges and universities are going towards becoming private. And I'm not saying that they're going to become private the next day, but it's, it's going towards that model. And, you know, take uh, the most basic fact. In this country, we have more student loan debt than we do credit card debt. Right. That's unbelievable. In 1990, if you went to Rutgers, you paid 35% of your tuition, and the government covered the rest. In 2011, that's that's reversed. You pay 65%, and the government covers 35%. And that's 30%, also 30%. ridiculous. But yeah. yeah. So, so why why is that happening? Why is, is the state gradually paying less of uh, higher education costs? It's, a, it's a, uh, a mismatching of priorities. Higher education has not been on a high priority list in New Jersey in the last 20 years. In fact, in 2006, if you remember right before the recession and the, and the Dow was at four, uh, 14,000 uh, and everything, everyone was happy and everyone owned 10 houses, that... Well, I think just John McCain owned 10 houses. Yeah. <laughs> but um, during that time, uh, New Jersey was one of the four states that cut higher education spending. So even in times of boom and boon, uh, we've right. screwed over higher And in kids. times of Democrats and Republicans, too. Yeah, Same so thing. it's not Republicans or Democrats' fault. Actually, it's both of their faults. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But, like, what is motivating them to go oh. in this direction? Um, well, I know, for one, we just gave millionaires tax breaks. Again, I'm hitting on that point. It's an important point because... They have all this extra cash, and I don't have any. But also, the idea that we, the average amount of money we spend on one inmate in prison is $40,000 a year. And tuition at Rutgers, if you live on campus, is just over 20000 So our state thinks it's more important to keep people in jail than it is to educate children. Uh, so, I, I think that's, that's a little... Uh... No, it's, it's absolutely true. If you just look at the amount of spending, that they actually increase prison spending last year while they decreased higher education spending. And here's the thing about prison spending is that I don't think Joel is advocating that, you know, murderers or any no. serious crime, uh, criminals no serious get out. What, what we're talking about is people who smoke a joint get thrown in jail for years and the cost of them being in jail right. is astronomical. So at some point we have to look at, I suppose, like... We have to make the, a choice. The reasons of sending people to prison. 
needs to be looked at too. Well, we're really getting off into a lot of different topics here. We no, actually- but these all relate because all of these um, mispriorities as well as mismanaging of the funds take away from funding of higher education. And it, and it forces the colleges and universities in the state and country to go towards a private model. And so the, the less money that they have over the years, as well as, you know, prices keep rising, gasoline, et cetera, et cetera. Gas is now $10 million a barrel. So, you know, <laughs> it, it forces these colleges to cut on services as well as start going into private mode. Yeah, you know, we actually did a show on the war on drugs a couple of weeks ago with mm. a former New Jersey State police officer who shares the uh he's in favor it's of a prohibition it's not it's it's a prohibition and a failed one. yeah, yeah. <laughs> we covered that for for an entire show but uh, i guess to your point though about budgets that's absolutely true that anytime a government goes about deciding how much money to spend in each parts of a budget there are moral choices involved and there are priorities set and I absolutely understand what you what you guys are getting at that we as students and as citizens really need to go about forcing our leaders in government to make higher education funding a higher priority and uh, fight back. Yeah, and here's the uh, biggest problem with student voting is one we don't have election day registration in the state, meaning it, unless you're not uh, pre-registered to vote, you can't vote. On election day and that uh, decreases voter turnout among the youth and second of all the youth don't vote in a block there's no there's always an organized effort to get young people registered to vote but there's never an organized effort to get them to vote in um, on an issue and that's a problem well to that point in 2008 when Obama was running for president we had more young people vote in this country than in the history of the United States so in 2008 more young people ever came out into the streets to the voting because they voted but still our politicians ignore us. Like, we had more young people vote than ever before, but they continue to cut our education. So voting really doesn't fix the problem because we tried that and they still ignore us. We need to take more drastic actions in order to stop being ignored by these people who are in charge. Because right now they're listening to the people who fund their elections, the millionaires who demand tax breaks every single year, and they make us fix the budgets that they themselves created. That's really the problem, and we need to get students to do more than just vote. I mean, well, the system, if the system doesn't work, then you got to fix it. Right, so, you have to change the complete system. You know, we, need a, we need an effort to mobilize student votes as well as doing other things that will get people's attention. Right, and, and aren't, 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 we, aren't we organizing something for that? Yeah, so we're, we're organizing a day of action on April 13th. With every school across the state of New Jersey? Uh, every public four-year school. Mm-hmm. And so each school is going to do something different, but Rutgers is planning a, a walk into action on April 13th. So every um, Voorhees student, Mall at two thirty p.m. Every student should expect to hear something about this, and we we expect a turnout of, I don't know, well, maybe a, everybody who's listening to the show right now just heard about it. So, <laughs> and everybody who checks out the podcast at the the core.fm will also hear about your event, and hopefully, it's everyone's all, event. Exactly. Hopefully, they all participate. And this isn't just a Rutgers thing. This is a statewide thing with New Jersey schools, as well as turns out California. Uh, day of action is also on april 13th so that's pretty cool it's a national all right well it's it sounds it all sounds very exciting and it sounds like you guys are very motivated activists and and hopefully this is a way for us to get state and local governments to focus a little bit more about higher education now that's a little different direction than what the show started out as but hey it was it was a nice lively discussion and, and it was great to have you guys on so 
you guys want to say anything else before you? Uh, I just want to say that uh, as Rutgers students, as students in general, we don't have to sit back anymore and take these tuition hikes every single year. We can do something about it. So, you know, tell your friends. Come out. Yeah, and the biggest, you know, one of the important things is that um, it's really uh, damaging to be cynical in these times. We're, 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 we have a horrible higher education system in New Jersey where we get cut and cut and cut. And this year we have level funding. However, that's still a cut because still it's not adjusted for, you know, um, prices are severely different than, than it was. Right, um, and not adjusted for inflation. Exactly. Absolutely. So um, it's – and. In the future, we can't even we can't trust the legislators, Democrat or Republican, to increase our uh, higher education to where it needs to be. So we need to take action. All right. Well, it was great having you guys on, and uh, thank you for for joining me. Thank you. Thank you. And that's all we have for this week's core of the matter on public sector unionization and at the end it turned into more of a discussion about higher education in new jersey but hey that's what happens when you have on on campus groups it's always great to talk about what they want to talk about as well and i hope you guys enjoyed the show overall if you have any ideas for a future core of the matter if you don't like the topics that we're covering right now you can email me at public affairs director at the core.fm Thank you for listening to the show this week. I'm going to be back next Tuesday night again, 7 p.m. to 8 p.m. And we're probably going to be talking about CAPS, which is an on-campus counseling service for stressed-out students and you know, provides psychiatric help, all, all sorts of uh, all sorts of mental health services on campus. So that's what you have to look forward to next week. Again, thank you for joining us. And... Uh, you were listening to Core of the Matter here on 90.3 The Core, our weekly public affairs show. Stay tuned for some more great Core Radio. You've been listening to The Core of the Matter on 90.3 The Core. Opinions expressed on The Core of the Matter are those of the participants only and not necessarily those of WVPHFM or Rutgers University.